In this video, I'll present a possible scenario of how the Antichrist will rise upon the world stage. I base my scenario on the books of Daniel and Revelation and some of the other prophets. Thus, it is very important that you first watch part one of this video series where I define the prophetic symbols of the beast, crowns, horns, and heads that are used to explain and describe the Antichrist's rise to power. Also at this point, I would stress that I do not believe that a specific person can be identified as the Antichrist prior to the Tribulation. Rather, we can only define the characteristics that we would expect to see in the Antichrist. Always remember that the Church will be in Heaven during the Tribulation, and if the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior, you'll not see the Antichrist arise on the world stage. Therefore, when I give present-day examples relating to prophecy and the Antichrist, I do this to demonstrate the feasibility that these prophetic events could take place in the very near future. I am not suggesting that they are already being fulfilled or that some contemporary personality is the Antichrist. My scenario begins with the rise of an empire, the fourth beast, rising out of the sea, as we described and studied in part one of the video series. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, John describes, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Rather than a sudden emergence, this reinvigorated Roman Empire will make a gradual appearance upon the world stage. Its development could begin prior to the Tribulation, but it will only achieve its full power after the Tribulation begins. Now, a good modern-day example of such a potential empire is the European Union. I'll often call it the EU. That began the EU over 70 years ago with only six nations. It now is composed of 27 nations. Its unique governmental structure, called a supranational authority, is without precedence in history and now governs over 447 million people. Unlike a federal government, its 27-member authority commission all of which are unelected, is free to make decisions without any significant checks and balances placed upon it. Every qualifying member of the Commission bases his or her governing decisions solely upon how it will benefit and achieve the goals of the European Union in total. They ignore specific needs of individual nations. Nothing can get in the way of the global goal of the EU. In other words, they are beyond, above, and supra any loyalties to their native-born countries. And they certainly aren't chosen to represent those countries. This governmental form is unique in history. For this form, supranationalism has never existed prior to the creation of the EU. And as such, it fits Daniel's use of his word diverse, 
a diverse kingdom, as described in Daniel chapter 7, verse 23, where Daniel writes, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, shall tread it down and break it in pieces. You see, this word diverse occurs only three times in the scriptures. It is used of Israel in Esther 3.8. It is used of the government here in Daniel 7.23 and of the Antichrist in Daniel 7.24. In each of its usages, it speaks of a one-of-a-kind, either nation, government, or person. Thus, we should expect Daniel's fourth kingdom to have some characteristic that makes it the only kingdom in history that could be described as diverse, following the biblical usage. Based upon this uniqueness, we should be able to recognize the fourth empire by its singularly unprecedented form of government. Since the European Union is the only government to have a historically unique form, a supranational government, it does fulfill Daniel's characteristic and makes it an excellent candidate to study. Now, let us take a closer look at the European Union and its unique governing authority to see if it might possibly be the embryo of Daniel's latter-day Fourth Empire. It is significant that today's Union membership also is comprised of nations that trace their geographical ancestry right back to the ancient Roman Empire. A second prophetic characteristic of the Fourth Empire. When added to a group of non-EU nations that are part of the EU's what they call Neighborhood Program, the combined group now surrounds the Mediterranean Sea just as the ancient Roman Empire did geographically. With time, it is planned for these neighborhood nations to join the EU. In so doing, it makes the EU fit two of the Latter-day Beast characteristics outlined in Part 1 of our video series. Oh yes, by the way, the neighborhood does include the nation of Israel, which completes that characteristic uh, that we would expect to see of the nation surrounding the Mediterranean Sea and connected to the nation of Israel. Now, while Jerusalem is not under the direct control of the EU today, the EU's foreign policy often focuses upon Israel. Along with the United Nations, Russia, the United States, the EU formed a diplomatic group in 2001, which they called the Quartet, whose goal is peace between Israel and the Palestinian Authority. Owing to several political events of the last few years, the functioning of the Quartet has moved it toward the rear of the world stage. But interestingly, it is still on the world stage. Beginning in 2007, the United Kingdom's former Prime Minister, Tony Blair, was the envoy representing this group in the Middle East. 
Now, in 2008, Blair resigned his post when he decided to pursue his two prime interests of life. Owing to Blair's unique and ongoing close relationship with the EU, he becomes a prime example for us of how a man can rise to power in the fourth Latter-day Empire. Since Tony Blair has become quite a bit older, and certainly far less active in the political scene, he makes an excellent example for our study, as the possibility of his being the Antichrist is very remote. But let's look at Blair as an example, showing again the feasibility of how the rise of the empire could occur. Blair's first prime interest is the Tony Blair Faith Foundation, an interfaith charitable foundation established in May of 2008. Its stated purpose was and is the practical support required to help prevent religious prejudice, conflict, and extremism that threatens global peace. Blair hopes that the united effort of world religions will aid in bringing about world peace. In December of 2016, this foundation became part of his new Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. Through this institute, Blair is able to follow his second prime interest. This interest is to develop a non-elected global group of executives who will improve democracy. He believes the whole business of government must change, and I quote, radically to be effective, end quote. He hopes that his new and efficient system of giving direct or indirect advice to world leaders will also help to achieve global peace. Notice, giving direct or indirect advice to world leaders. That's the same idea of an unelected group guiding world nations. Many observers view Tony Blair's ideas as an attempt to end frustration over the ever-going Middle East conflict. Having failed to achieve this through existing governments, Blair seeks to change the way the world system operates. Britain's Daily Mail speculated that this is proof that Blair is a megalomaniac who desires global domination through his, quote, leaders club, end quote, while others see it as the only solution to the problems associated with Jerusalem. Although Tony Blair's religious and governmental goals and actions resemble those of Satan's final empire, I would again note that we should not declare him to be the Antichrist, for such identification is impossible before the tribulation begins. The most we can say is that he is spearheading movements that could lead the world in the direction that is advantageous to the Antichrist and may have been actually laying the groundwork for him. While this plan of using a select group of elites non-elected world leaders to become the decision makers of the world may startle many. The concept isn't new. Dante, 
who lived between 1265 and 1321, first proposed a similar system of governance that was resurrected and promoted by the man who is considered to be the EU's founding father, Frenchman Jean Monnet. Following World War II, Monet took an active interest in discussions that many had hoped would bring about the League of Nations. When this failed, another attempt was made at the end of the Second World War, when Monet promoted his brilliant idea of gradually introducing unification of government through non-elected, impartial officials. In 1951, he utilized the European Coal and Steel Community, the ECSC, to introduce this concept of governance through unelected officials in order to resolve conflicts, in this case, between France and Germany over their coal and steel industry. This organization became the embryo and the prototype of the European Union. The ECSC named its governing board the High Authority and gave it the task of making, and I quote, impossible for France and Germany to go to war again, end quote. The nine non-elected decision makers of the ECSC were to suppress their own natural interests in favor of the general interests of the community. Today's EU follows the same form of government, but has wisely renamed the higher authority by making it the commission, a much friendlier and less threatening term. Today, this commission is comprised of 27 unelected members, one for each nation in the European Union. It appears reasonable to conclude that an EU-like organization will morph into the beast's empire by the start of the tribulation. Its present goal is to include 107 nations of the world. As it devours nations and its governing body grows to an unwieldy size, the Commission's desire for efficiency may prompt it to create a 10-region area with 10 decision-makers instead of 27 right now, comprising the ruling authority. Interestingly, 10 is the typical size grouping common in today's EU. Surely this concept fits the characteristics of the final empire described in Daniel 7.23 that speaks of it devouring the whole earth, treading it down and breaking it into pieces. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2, we find that the latter-day Roman Empire has ten toes, chapter 2, verse 42, and Daniel's vision in chapter 7 has ten horns of power. That's in verse 7 of chapter 7. These are ten political and military regional powers that compose the empire. Initially, the decision-making authority will be composed of ten heads. Revelation 17, verse 12. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. According to this verse, the leadership will rotate among the ten heads 
rather than ten kings co-ruling simultaneously. This is suggested by the words telling us that they will receive power as kings one hour. For example, each term of leadership as king or president, using one of our terms, might last for six months. Interestingly, again, this is the procedure followed by the EU's consul today. They rotate the leadership every six months. Revelation 17 also suggests a succession of leadership. It says, There are seven kings. Five are fallen. Now, literally, a descent from a high to a lower position is what the word fallen means. And one is, that's the current king, and the other, the next king, is not yet come. As a supranational government, each of these kings will serve the empire rather than his or her own nation-state, as indicated by the words, they would have one mind. That's the empire's purpose. And the ten horns receive powers as kings, having one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. Revelation 17, verses 12 and 13. The scriptures mention another person who will rise to world prominence and would be diverse or unique in history. Daniel 7.24 And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them. He shall be diverse, or unique would be the literal translation, from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. I believe this unique individual will be the ruling authority's envoy to Israel, probably in a position much like Tony Blair served. In my book on Russia and the Ukraine, The Battle of Gog Magog, Ezekiel 38 and 39, I explain that the biblical destruction of Russia and our allies by God, described again in Ezekiel 38 and 39, will open Israel's eyes as a nation. It will cause her to acknowledge God's intervention, supernatural intervention, on her behalf. This will not be a spiritual revival, but it will be a national awareness of God as deliverer. Out of gratitude, the Jewish people will desire to reestablish their covenant relationship with him through sacrifices and offerings. Now, this can only be done at the temple site in Jerusalem. Since the site today now remains under Gentile control, for Luke 24:21 says, Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of Gentiles be fulfilled. Israel thus will seek the Gentiles' permission to resume sacrifices on the temple site. I would note carefully that if you look at the history of Israel, you'll find that they were able to offer sacrifices at the temple site on two occasions without the temple being built or rebuilt on the site. In other words, they can begin sacrificing on the temple site, whether there's a temple there or not. That's something that could begin on any given day with almost no preparation. Now, since Jerusalem, prior to the tribulation, will still be under, in essence, the control of the Gentile world, The world will watch what happens at Gog Magog. They will recognize that God 
destroyed Russia and its allies. Therefore, much like conditions following the Holocaust, the world will realize they should yield to Israel and allow them this permission to once again begin sacrifices. Thus, the ruling authority's envoy, who I believe will be the Antichrist, will make an agreement or a covenant that permits the resumption of covenant worship at the site. In doing this, it will trigger the start of the 70th week of Daniel, Daniel 9.27, which is the start of the tribulation. We read in 9.27, And he, the Antichrist, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation, and that determined shall be poured out upon the desolate. Notice carefully in this verse, there are only two conditions attached to the covenant. That is sacrifice and oblation, or offerings. So those are the two things that are arranged in the covenant by the Antichrist at the beginning of the tribulation, and now halfway through the one prophetic week, which is three and a half years, he will stop the two things that he had covenanted to allow them to do. Now, aided by Satan, the envoy's success will then th thrust him, this is the success to the initial treaty, will thrust him to prominence and power as the little horn of Daniel 7, verse 8, which reads, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. As a king with great authority, according to Revelation 13.2, he will then replace one of the ten decision makers of the ruling authority. In this leadership position, he will exercise his political and military power as the horn in order to overcome and subdue three more of the regional powers of the empire. This is the meaning of plucked up by the roots. With this success, the Antichrist, who is now part of the ruling authority, assumes authority over all their regions and removes them as heads of power. Daniel 7.24 And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall rise, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, from those first ten. He will be unique in history, and he shall subdue three kings. As a result, the ruling authority will be reduced to six of the original decision-making makers, plus the Antichrist as the little horn, now representing four of the regents. The governmental empire of beast will now have seven heads, just as John describes in Revelation 13.1 when he says, I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast, that's an empire, rise up out of the sea, having seven heads, seven decision makers, and ten horns, political and military powers, and upon his horns ten crowns. 
Now that's the original ruling authority. In my other video series on Gog Magog, I based the placement of the Battle of Gog Magog after the rapture, but before the start of the tribulation, because I believe this reduced ruling authority will be in place shortly after the start of the seven-year tribulation. It is precisely at this time that we also find the woman of Revelation 17, verse 3, sitting upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. As explained in more detail in my book on the European Union, this woman will represent Satan's false global religion that mimics Christianity and influences the Gentiles of the world to restore Babylon, Revelation 18.10. Babylon will be the religious and commercial center of the world. The peak of the Antichrist's career will be his ascension from being the little horn to the single power and leader of the ruling authority. To accomplish this, Satan will aid him in mimicking Jesus Christ's resurrection. We read in Revelation 13, verse 3, And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. As the world witnesses the seemingly tragic death of the little horn, he will amazingly rise from the dead. Now, due to time limitations, I will not consider the genuineness of the resurrection, but merely relate what we are told. I do believe that at this time, Satan will use him as a spokesman, as indicated in Revelation 13, the latter part of verse 2. And the dragon gave him his power, and his seat and great authority. As stated before, I believe the leadership of the ruling authority will be successive. At the time of the little horn's death, he will be the sixth king or president of this ruling body. Of necessity, his death will cause him to be replaced by the next head that will then become the seventh king. Following the in quotes, resurrection of the little horn, the ruling authority members will respond to this miracle by reinstating the little horn now as an the eighth king. In recognition of his apparent superiority, the remaining six kings will resign, making him the sole decision maker of the ruling authority. John describes these events in Revelation 17 and verse 10 and 11 where we read, And there are seven kings, decision makers. Five are fallen, have ended their terms as leader of the seven, and one is, that is the sixth successive leader, and the other, the seventh successive leader, is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue for a short space. And the beast that was and is not even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. At the midpoint of the tribulation, the little horn will become Satan's antichrist, his mimic of the real Christ, for anti means instead of. This will happen when he causes Israel to stop sacrificing and desecrates the temple by placing an image of himself in the Holy of Holies to be worshipped as God. See Matthew 24:15, Daniel 9:23, 
Daniel 11.31 and Daniel 12.11. Satan will have achieved his desire for global government and worship of himself like the Most High, which is what his testimony said his goal was in Isaiah 14, verse 14. Satan also has an anti-Elijah, a mimic of the true prophet of God, who is predicted to come to Israel during the tribulation. Satan's anti-Elijah, the false prophet of Revelation 13, will be heralded with his arrival on the scene, just as Elijah will be heralded before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Because Satan no longer will need the world religion represented by the woman, Mystery Babylon the Great, she will be cast off by the powers of the empire when the Antichrist demands full worship. Revelation 17, verses 16 and 17. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree, and give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God be fulfilled. At the height of his career, the Antichrist and his followers now, according to Revelation 17, verse 14, shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. With the coming of the Lord, at the end of the tribulation, the little horn, the Antichrist, will go to perdition or destruction, according to Revelation 17.11. Then Daniel tells us in Daniel 2, verse 44 and 45, In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. The dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. Whether my scenario is a correct understanding or whether it needs modifications, only time will tell. However, what is important is to note what Daniel has said here. The great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. You see, God determines prophecy, God carries it out, and God always keeps his word. Remember what Daniel says of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The dream is certain. When we read the scriptures, what we read is exactly what will happen. But until that time, obviously we could misinterpret something, but what will happen in the tribulation, that is certain. We read then finally in Daniel 7, verse 26. But the judgment shall sit, and shall take away his dominion, to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints. That's you and me, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. To the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him.
I would like to conclude this series with a couple thoughts about prophecy in general. I'm often asked, is prophecy relevant to my life, to our daily lives, to this world we're in? I think it is. First of all, number one, it is in the scriptures. We are told in 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Secondly, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that or the purpose is the man of God may be perfect, complete, mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. Why should we be thoroughly furnished or equipped? Well, we are to be the bride of Christ, to rule and reign with him in the millennium. We need to prepare now for that great responsibility. Third point, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.8, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love his appearing. You see, God gives insight and understanding to those who seek the Lord's coming, those that love his appearing. Daniel, Isaiah, the shepherds at the birth of Christ, the wise men, Anna, Simeon, and John were all looking for the coming Messiah. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7 to 12, we read, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained or designed before the world unto our glory. And then moving on, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. He goes on, But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. Why? that we might know the things that are freely given to us of our God. Then in Romans chapter 13, verse 11, And that, knowing the time, that is now high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. A final thought in Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 12 teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now remember, a better translation of the word world is this present age. Looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. I hope this video has helped you to begin to understand the complexity of the rising of the Antichrist on the world stage. This is but merely a small portion of what John has taught in his prophecy, what Daniel has taught in his prophecy, and the many prophets taught us about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
While this ends the session on the Antichrist, we'll certainly be bringing you more sessions on those prophecies of these prophetic writings from our God's Word. For remember, God's Word and God says, these things are certain. Now until the Lord comes to take his bride home to be with him, may the Lord bless you mightily, and I'll either see you here again or in the air. <laughs> 